You know, some years ago, the distinguished publishing house of Grosset and Dunlap brought together a panel of 28 educators as well as historians, and they asked them if they would select what they believed to be the 100 most significant events of history, and then they were supposed to list those 100 events in order of importance. So after months and months of labor, the panel came together and they reported that they considered the most significant event of history to be the discovery of America. And in second place was the invention of movable type by Gutenberg. Eleven different events tied for third place and five events tied for fourth place. The events that tied for fourth place were the writing of the U.S. Constitution, the development of ether, the discovery or invention of the airplane, and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Jesus tied for fourth out of the hundred greatest events in the history of the world. Jesus tied for fourth along with these things that I, I've listed. Now that really shouldn't come to us perhaps as too much of a surprise, especially in the world we lived in, live in today. So much of it has become secularized and a lot of people just don't really uh, put as much stock in Jesus and Christianity as they once did. For a lot of people, Jesus is just an afterthought and they think about him maybe at the time of baptism or marriage, sometimes at a funeral, but not really to be considered at other times. So I want to be really clear today, so clear that we can't make any mistake about it whatsoever. Jesus Christ is not fourth. He's the first. He's the most important event, person, thing that has ever taken place or will ever take place in the history of our world. You know, he's not tied with anybody. He's triumphant. And if you've been following this series along with us online, I know it's a little bit different online than it is here in person. Believe me, it's very different for me sitting by myself uh, in my office in front of a, a camera. And it, it's somewhat unnatural. But if you've been following along with that, I've tried to at least get the main gist of uh, what I'm going to get across to you today and what I will in subsequent weeks as we meet together uh, online in that shortened period. But if you've been following this, we've learned so far that Christ is triumphant in his life. He was triumphant in his death and resurrection. He's triumphant in his church. But the Bible also tells us that Jesus is triumphant in his return. And that is when he comes back at some point in the future. I don't know when that's going to be. I am not a, a prophet or a son of a prophet. I don't know. People have been saying uh, my entire life is coming soon. Uh, the Bible even uses the word soon, but it uses it in the sense of uh, in this period of time after Jesus went back, we're in that scope of history. We don't know when that's going to be. Jesus even said that he didn't know the day or hour. And so if he doesn't know the day or hour, I certainly don't. But we do know this. We're always one second closer than we were before. So I look at it kind of like that. But we do know that when he comes, he will come in triumph. 
Now we put a handout in your bulletin and it is the scripture text, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And if you want to pull that out, I wanted you to just follow along as I read this text. This is going to be the main text this morning. We'll, we'll look at some others, but I really want to center on this as much as possible where we read about Jesus' triumphant return. So let me read that. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, and if you will follow along. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Now the symbolism here is absolutely mind-blowing and it gives us just a small taste of the triumph that is yet to come. And I want us to consider a few of these things that are presented to us here. There's an outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along with that. There's three specific things I want to point out today. The first one is this, the appearance of the king. The appearance of the king. And you know, as we see Jesus, he's now one at this present time. He's one who has lived in eternity past. He became a man. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And now in our text, it's describing him as he returns as a conqueror, as a deliverer. And verse 16 that we read gives us no doubt as to who the writer's describing when he says, on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. I want us to take a moment to dig down into this description in, in more depth. He says that the king is faithful and true. And, and we see in this passage, Jesus is given three uh, names to be identified. Can you ever think of a time when we could say that Jesus was unfaithful? Or that Jesus was untrue. Can you recall a time when Jesus was unfaithful to you? Can you ever remember a time when you tried to obey the Lord and you, you could say, Lord, you lied to me. You weren't faithful in your promise. Or have you ever come to a place in the Bible where you could say, God, you're a liar. Your word isn't true. Now, I know most of us wouldn't say it quite like that. <laughs> but, but ever even thought something like that, you know? Uh, I, I really doubt it. I, I don't think you can. Because this is the very nature of who Jesus is. He is faithful. He is true. He's not just a person that commits faithful acts or says things that are true. This is who he is. This is his identity. Okay? Faithful and true. And now it also tells us that this king is the word of God. Literally, the logos, you've probably heard that term. That's what uh, word is translated from that word, logos. 
the word of God. Back in John chapter 1, verse 1 of John's gospel, this is how he begins the gospel. He said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay? Uh, he continues in that same chapter, John 1, 14. And he says, and the word became flesh. This is what we call the incarnation Jesus coming amongst us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, this same word or logos that John describes in his gospel as coming to earth the first time. He now describes in the book of Revelation as coming again in triumph. The first time the word came. He came to witness the awfulness of sin and to rise above temptation and to pay the price on the cross for our salvation. But now the word of God returns to bring those that he died for home to be with him for all of eternity. The text says the king is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Now your English translation, it puts the second instance of the word king and the second instance of the word Lord in lowercase letters, which is appropriate because Jesus doesn't come as a king and a Lord, but as the king who stands above and beyond all earthly kings and a Lord who surpasses all earthly lords. They don't rise to the height of his ankle in comparison. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Lord. And then we read that the king's eyes are like flames of fire. Now remember, we're talking also about Jesus' appearance, not just his names. No longer is anybody going to picture Jesus as mild or weak or wimpy. I have a lot of trouble with a lot of the films that are out there portraying Jesus. Uh, a lot of them do a fairly good job, but so often they make him out like this weak, milquetoast kind of guy, you know, and I, I don't think he's like that at all, not even close. Obviously, he was gentle and meek, and he treated people with love and grace, but he was hardly a wimp. You know, we're going to have this time where we all see these flames in his eyes and realize that while he is the God of grace, he's also the God of judgment. He's given us warning after warning for thousands of years. And then he says at some point. The end has come. Another thing it talks about is. The king's robe. It says he wears a robe. That's dipped in blood. Can you even imagine such a thing? I mean. A robe dipped in blood. The word that's used here. For dipped. Is the exact same word. That's used for baptism. For immersion being put down under water, but here put down in blood. The same word. Somebody's been soaked. They've been covered. They've been immersed. Have you ever put on clothing that was soaked with water or you go out on a day like today and if you're out there for a while, you become completely drenched. You can feel the weight of it. You can feel the sticking to your skin. What if instead of water, it was blood. You imagine the feeling? I mean, it reminds you of some of these horror movies or something like that. Somebody just drenched in blood. 
Jesus comes having shed his own blood for our redemption, and he proudly wears these bloody garments for everyone to see. It's both a horrific and a wonderful thing to witness. And then we read that the king is riding on a white horse. You know, we've labeled Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey as the triumphal entry, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing, but I've always had a little bit of a trouble with that title because this is the triumphal entry that we're reading about here. Rather than riding in on a donkey, we see Jesus coming in on a war horse, and he comes this time not with a message for the masses, but he's coming on a mission for those who have given their lives over to him. This king who is coming is a king who knows what he is doing and will execute his plan flawlessly. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing, again on your bulletin, is the armies of the king. The armies of the king. It said that the armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. You know, up until this point in our lives, the Bible tells us very clearly we've been in a battle with Satan and with these different spiritual forces. And we've been warned to make sure that we are equipped for battle. Paul tells us about it in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul describes a battle that whether you realize it or not, you're fighting it and I'm fighting it every single day. And we're going to continue fighting in that battle until this day that we're looking at now when Jesus returns. It's a battle that is fought with spiritual weapons and with God at our side, we know that we cannot be defeated. And that battle to come is similar, yet it's different. Because we know that God is going to win that battle as well. But the good news for us is that is the battle to end all battles. It's over with at that point. Never again is there going to be need for a war of any kind, either spiritual or physical. Now in this battle, we're told that the armies of heaven are going to come with Jesus. And who are these armies? Well, most likely they consist of the the following groups. First of all would be the angels. In Matthew 25, 31, Jesus said, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now that shouldn't really surprise us because the angels are often described in the Bible as being equipped and engaged 
in battle with the enemy. It'd be a good topic for another time. But I show you a place where it specifically talks about angels watching over certain people or even areas, uh, geographic areas, things like this. But much of the ministry of angels is a mystery to us. But we do know that they've been ministering to us all along. And they'll come with Jesus for this grand finale. And then the other group of people are people like us, the redeemed, those who have given our lives to Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18, it says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. You see, there's a qualification there. It's for those specifically who believe that Jesus died and rose again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, which is a metaphor for those who have passed before us. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If I'm correct in my interpretation, all those who have died and who have gone to be with the Lord prior to his return will be joining with him and his armies when they come back to receive the rest of the saints. And if you're a believer, you're a saint. I know we seem to have a different definition of today, but that's the biblical definition. Anyone who's a believer in Christ is a saint. And what a glorious, glorious picture this is. Not only serving the Lord, but also returning with him for those who have yet to see his glory in person. What a wonderful day that will be. Then the third and last thing we're going to look at is the authority of the king. You know, when Jesus came the first time, he came with authority. He says it himself in what we call the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, uh, 28, 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus had all authority. I used to have a professor that'd say, well, if Jesus has all authority, how much does that leave for you? <laughs> Zero, right? But Jesus had all authority. But he obviously limited that authority himself, self-limited, voluntarily, in many ways while still on this earth. But now he returns, and he executes the full force of his authority as he comes in triumph. Again, back to Revelation 19, 15, and 16. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus comes leading his armies, but his sword is not held in his hand. Now it says that his sword is coming from his mouth. Why? Because again, he is the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give 
account. You know, the words from Jesus' mouth have always arrived with power. In the beginning, it was the spoken word which created this universe. In the Gospels, it's Jesus' word that we find is stilling storms and healing bodies and bringing peace to troubled hearts. And here at the end, or maybe we should say at the beginning, it's the sword coming from Jesus' mouth, which comes in power, and the text says, strikes all who oppose him. His authority and his power is beyond anything that we have ever imagined because it's beyond anything we have ever seen. It's beyond anything we have ever heard of until we read it here. Jesus comes with authority. Now, if you're like me, this series hopefully has helped you to get a better grasp on the triumphal nature of Jesus and everything that he touches. And if you haven't followed along, you can still log in uh, on Facebook and all the videos are there. But the good news is that if we accept him, then we get to experience all of these wonderful triumphs that he has accomplished on our behalf. And whether that triumph be in our lives today, the life to come, or somewhere in between, we can rest assured that through Jesus, our triumph is certain. So the question today is, have you come into that relationship with him? Uh, have you surrendered your heart to the King of Kings and the Lord of all lords? If so, you can rest in the truth of his triumph. If you haven't, you can make that day today. Thank you.